Business Source is proudly sponsored by JCH Communications. When it comes to marketing, we mean business. From websites to videos, we can guarantee you a return on your investment. Take a look now on our website at our video, www.jchcom.com. Hi, and welcome to Business Source, the show that gives you authentic conversations to help your business. There's no smoke and mirrors, just real people sharing their experiences. I'm your host, Lee Nightingale, and today I'm joined by someone that quite possibly has a different opinion to me when it comes to CRM. Please welcome the founder of Boxstep. It's Kevin Dixon, everyone. Morning, Lee, and I am ready for a feisty one. I'm going to limber up, ready for this. <laughs> ready to go, mate. For those listening, that's Kevin doing his yoga stretching, ready, ready to really sock it to me. Um, Kevin, um, uh, before we sort of dig down into uh, your current situation, because um, I want to go right back to the beginning, how you, um, where it all started and get back to where, where you are today. Just share very quickly what Boxstep is, so we, to put some context in there for us. Okay, so I, I always try and say is, uh, we are to CRM what spinach is to Popeye. So we are gonna sort of add some, some oomph, some value to, to CRM. Um, so you know how there's more people involved in making a decision with your prospects now. That's the sort of thing that we help with. So I think it's been termed the, the buying committee, the buyer group, the decision-making unit. It's really about helping sales teams align their selling with that group of people. Wonderful. So along the lines of those that wishing to do plans and influence mapping, that kind of thing, but better. You got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, oh, it's like the more people there are, the more complicated it is because the, the more people, the more confusion, the more different opinions, everything, how you manage that. You've got to be organized in sales in, in, in those sort of deals. Yeah, absolutely. And it almost never is about who reports to who. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think I read there was a stat not long ago where I said that I think it's something like a uh, about 60% of deals now don't involve the actual decision makers. Uh, they just sign it off. Um, you know, they trust their, their lieutenants or the people behind. So when they talk about influence being more powerful than authority, I think we're seeing that as a massive trend now. Uh, absolutely. I think probably because as oldens, you know, we perhaps sometimes don't have our finger on the pulse with all these latest uh, bits of tech and, and gadgets and wizardry that are available but um uh, people of a younger persuasion ge generally are you know they're they're all over it um and you know it's, it's great to get them involved um yeah so t take us back to the beginning um where, where did you start out your journey in uh, as an employee um and, and, and in business yeah see now Obviously, for those that are watching by video, they can see I'm not young. For those that are listening, are just about to learn that I'm not young. My, my sales career goes way back to the 80s. And my first ever job is a pretty well-known company. But I was still at school then, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was, uh, don't, tell, don't say what level of school, because if it's really young, then the gap's even bigger. But, uh, so yeah, Ericsson, but in those days, see this Ericsson UK, it had to be called Thorne Ericsson because we had uh, the monopoly of BT, you know, foreign companies couldn't come and work here in telecoms. And most people know Ericsson because of mobile handsets, but the, their real name came from the infrastructure, the, the public networks, the mobile networks, or as I did, big enterprise networks for, for major corporates. 
And uh, it, I, I sort of look back fondly now because it, 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 when I became a sales guy, the average sales guy in those days was in, in, in the telecoms industry was about 55. And it was very formal, very formal. I always laugh, and I've said this a few times in the past, I always used to sort of chuckle is that you see these guys in their, their three-piece suits, very smart, and their idea of relaxing would be to take their tie off and put a cravat on, you know, with that sort of formality. And so I wanted to break in and become a sales guy. And, and I was 20. And it's like, whoa, geez. so, and I remember see, I had to go and see the sales director, which nowadays is the chief revenue officer or SVP sales, whatever you want to pass the title you want to call yeah, yeah. it. And uh, this guy called Rex Davis, and he looked like he was proper Second World War moustache, you know, real, you know, really, really um, smart military type guy. And he gave me my first break in sales. And I, I often talk about people when you get these guys that say they don't want to cold call on the phone. Cold calling in those days wasn't on the phone. You turned up and knocked on the door. Mm. You went to reception and said, can I see this person, whatever. Truly scary. And I didn't even have a comfy car. I had, I had a bus pass. So a demo case, a bus pass, and door knocking. So proper hard school. Um, but it was accepted practice nowadays. And you don't get so much of the gatekeepers and the resistance like you get nowadays. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's still, you know, you didn't do too many cold calls in the day. You turn up at the industrial estate and you go from door to door. And I was selling telephone systems, small ones at that stage. <laughs> so I rose up through the ranks, went through Ericsson. and I served 20 years at Ericsson, and it was fun time. It's what I call the good old days, because, you know, we had lots of corporate jollies and, and there was a lot of fruit on the trees. And you had to be pretty poor at selling to not be successful. Right. Rose up through the ranks, reluctantly moved into management, then actually enjoyed it, um, became responsible for a pretty big chunk of Ericsson Enterprises. We're about £125 million um, pounds in the UK at the time, so a reasonable size organisation. And uh, reporting directly into the CEO, one of the exec team. And then at 37, I decided it was time to go start up. And, uh, Naturally, yeah. That, well, everyone was talking about it. Everyone was saying, you've got to do this. And, and my career till that point had been pretty comfortable, pretty successful. So I, I felt I could sort of take a bit of a gamble um, and say, see how this goes. And I joined this very early stage startup um, based in that center of technology, Paul in Dorset. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Technology hub. <laughs> first, first place everyone goes to. It's more, it's more tourist than And, and uh, so... We went down there and cut a long story short on that side. We went, we had an idea or the the uh, the CTO had an idea and a business was being built around it. We went out and raised 10 million from the city to take it to market. And what it actually was is what a lot of people use today, which is you download applications to your mobile phone or mobile devices. That's what we pioneered. Um, and in those days, you didn't sell, you didn't do it through Google Play or the App Store. It was done by, a, by your mobile carrier. Um, so the Vodafone's, the Orange, the Three, or maybe not Three, that was a little bit later. Um, and, but it was, it was far more than that. It was subscriber profiling, understand who's doing what, what type of device they've got. Pretty cool technology. And mm. um, we took that to market globally, and that was fine. And we were competing against massive organizations, proper David and Goliath. I was going head to head with our 30 man company in Paul, with, you know, the, the, you know, the IBMs, the Motorola's, the Nokia's really big organizations and we had some huge success 
and we won some big global deals with some major carriers and we got acquired. So I went through a few more sort of startups, helping organizations. Um, I did return to corporate life for a while. Um, and But corporate life is, is full of politics and sometimes too much navel gazing, not enough gets done. And politics is one of the things that triggered the idea around Boxtech is because, you know, about four years ago, the, the, the problem associated with managing this group of people was much smaller. If you go back to what Gart says, four years ago, they said the average buying committee was 5.4 people. It gradually gone up. Now it's 11, or if you sell technology, 12 to 14. So, but, and, and politics is prevalent in every account. You know, you've got competing business streams for budget, different people, there's land grab. So um, that's when I, I, I've worked in sales leadership, exec sales leadership for 20 years, managing teams, using Salesforce, um, Sugar, bunch of other CRMs. And I just thought, hmm, things are changing. It's less about opportunity management, more about people management. We need to put some emphasis and focus on the people involved in the deciding and buying. Uh, and that's where the idea for Boxstep came. I do want to um, to dig into that past, Kevin. Uh, open some some boxes that I'm sure you've had closed for for a few years. But during that time at Ericsson, uh, that significant time at Ericsson, what would you say you personally gained from it, and what what did you feel that looking back on it, oh, I wish we'd done that differently. That's an interesting question. Actually, is, if I look, one of the things I do is if I look back at um, selling then, uh, something that I would say was very different than what it's today. Um, it really was about educating people because they didn't have access to the, the information that they do today. Um, but uh, I, I look back at that process and, and I learned pretty quickly that I had to sort of be on buyer side. Um, what would I have learned? Well, I had a hugely successful career, hugely, and it sounds a bit trump, trumpet blowing. And uh, yeah, that's okay. I quite, I quite like doing that from time to time. Whatever, um, <laughs> because you look back at some good old days, and, and things were, were great. There was plenty of fruit on the trees, you know. Let's say, uh, but I was highly targeted in, in in what I went after. So, what did I learn? Well, it's difficult, really, because when people say to me, "Oh, you've had." you know, whatever it is, 35, 38 years experience in sales. And I go, yeah, but most of it's no longer relevant. So I can look back on what I learned there and I go, well, I learned something that was relevant for the time. What I learned then isn't necessarily relevant for now, but the one thing that's been consistent from that time to now is the need to engage and understand people. Um, more so now than ever before, because we used to talk about people by from people. And yeah, that was largely true. You could be charismatic, build a relationship, and sometimes product was almost irrelevant and price pressure was less. Now- and You could go in with a bottle of whiskey and a, and a box of cigarettes. I, I completely, now you can't do that for all sorts of no. compliance reasons. And, and you, you'll know this as well. You and I have probably done a fair bit of business uh, on the golf course with our clients in the past. Yeah. Um, Nowadays, they've got time or they, they can't be seen to having those sort of things paid for by people. But 
it really it's a slightly more polarized view of understanding people it was then before we were understanding people based on developing a relationship you know what were your interest in life talking about football golf the weather whatever it might where your holiday family um all those things were about building a relationship now it's all about helping someone solve their their specific business problem or goal and when you're getting down to the granular level if you've got a bunch of people sometimes uh, they have different emotions, different feelings, and and on all this this thing about you know, the other expression that we used to live by: people people make an emotional decision to buy, then find a logical reason to justify it. That's fine if there's one person making the decision, but in buying committees, which is the norm now, you know, it doesn't really matter about the emotions of one person. It's the collective yes you're after, not the the single one. So the, answering your question in a pretty long-winded way is the thing I've learned now is that people matter but what matters to those people is different to what it was when I started in sales all those years ago. Right, right. So uh, I think it's probably worthwhile clarifying um, it's always beneficial to know the individuals as well as you possibly can and show that you've done your research on them uh, but are you saying that it's not necessarily at the, at the depth of knowing the birthday days of their kids and all that kind of thing like, like it was back then? Yeah, the sort of stuff that you have in CRM, um, absolutely <laughs> information. Um, but yeah, I, I think really when when if there is a, an, an agreed as a business, there's a problem they want to solve, the way that problem impacts different people in the organization will vary. So I can give you an example. Um, that's why I always say to people is that every selling involves change management. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're going to sell something, the buyer's got to change something if they buy it from us. And change impacts people in different way. And that's why I say when we sell something, there's winners and losers. Not everyone's a winner. Um, and the reason I say that is because if you imagine, I remember doing a, um, a managed service, a big outsource. Logically, logically, people were going to lose their job. The business was going to benefit. So we've got people involved in that process who potentially could lose half or all of their, their people. So you've got to be mindful of that. When you're engaging with people, you can't have a, a one-size-fits-all vanilla approach. Hey, I'm a sales guy, let me you know, let me talk to you in the same way. Everybody has you know, the, the, the gain and pain of selling. Someone might gain from it personally because that's going to help them be more efficient in their department, that allows them to save a certain amount off, off the, uh, the bottom line. And other people go, wow, that's going to really impact me. It's going to put more pressure on my resources. It's going to da-da-da-da-da. See, that's what you have to drill down. The shortcut selling that people really want to get into, sort of product pitch, fails. Because if you don't drill down and really understand the business problems and, and who's involved and how it impacts them and what's important to each of them, you can't build your, your sales solution. Yeah. Um, I think you're... I, I think you're... Um, you're highlighting those people on LinkedIn, for example, who send you that connection request saying, hi, I'm looking to expand my network. I think we have some synergies. Uh, and so you're like, hmm, okay, I'm intrigued. But actually what you're doing is just humoring them, knowing that there's nothing to it. And then lo and behold, you accept. And the very next message is buy Ooh. my product. Here's, yeah, get it all the time. Here's what we do. I think you'll really benefit from it. I'm like, you know nothing about me. Yeah. Yeah, is that, and they haven't done any research. One of the biggest problems I see, though, about a lot of that is it's sequenced. People are using tools to do mm. that. 
So it's not as if they've even manually looked up Lee Nightingale and sent you that. A lot of the time they've just done a search on LinkedIn using Navigate or something like that, and then put it into a sequence, start a message, customizing the first name, da 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 boom. And so it's it's not like they're doing some specific fly fishing after some trout. They're just blasting a load of maggots into the pond and seeing seeing, you know, who's gonna have a nibble. Uh, and then and yeah, interest, and I'm keen to get your view on this because it was an exercise, um, a marketing campaign that we did internally here at, at Connecting Business uh, through the LinkedIn Sales Navigator. And so I got my list very focused, you know, a few hundred, couple of thousand within a particular sector with certain job titles that I thought, yes, here's the people that I want, want to be talking to. And I thought I'm not just going to send a connection request with some short generic message. I'm going to actually spend the time to research every single individual, look at their profile, look at their company website, um, Google their name, see if I can find out something that shows that I've actually taken a significant interest and time in researching them and why I feel that that, that we should connect. And must have sent out a couple of hundred, zero response. And I'm not lying, zero. And the minute I changed tact to a connection request, but with a, with a slightly personalized message, and um, I'm really keen to chat with people about yada, 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 whatever subject uh, for, for our business-focused podcast, boom. I got infinitely more responses. People want to go on your podcast. So right. So yeah. there is a, so there's a long thing, whether it's your LinkedIn connection request, in mails, whether it's your email campaign, there was this big push to get everyone to personalize. And then the problem is, is personalization without relevance is becoming similar to when we had no personalization. It just doesn't really resonate enough. Relevance is and maybe you know you're talking about okay the business podcast and this person relevance and go oh i'd love to go on a podcast whereas before i had a linkedin connection request which i was pretty impressed with but it was never going to lead to anything because this guy made a personalized connection request and he used golf terminologies in there so he found on on facebook or whatever that I was a golfer and he put these golf terminology but the problem was the product wasn't relevant relevant to me so i was impressed but he spent a bunch of time making personalized but it wasn't relevant so in essence you waste a bunch of time so now, personalization know, without relevance. Did, did you respond to him yes in any way yes thank you because for that. I, I think those people that that don't respond I, i'll be i'll be blunt here and uh i'm not going to apologize for it i think if somebody does show that level of effort the least you owe them is do you know what Thanks for reaching out. I can see that you know you've researched me. Um, it's not quite what we're looking for at the moment, but but best wishes. I think that yeah. I get a small proportion of those when I've done things before, and I'm always grateful for those when people do. It's like I do. You know, I I've been looking for funding recently, so we've been reaching out to to uh, VCs and that. Most of them don't respond, but when you get one, it's personalised, like what you're doing, Kevin. But it's not fit for you. Thinking, thank you. Thank you for actually listening to what my, my or looking at what I wrote and, and responding to me. But at the same time, I think what do they say now? It depends who, who, what level you're going. I think they were saying the average exec has 135 emails a day. 
Um, and then how many things happen on LinkedIn and da 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 da. So some things are going to slip through the crack, but at the same time, there is this this thick barrier that's building around us now. We are so used to getting bombarded with some sort of request to sell us something, and most of the time, it's not even relevant. Most of the time, the spray and pray. Let's see, you know, if this sticks anywhere. And it's my background, though. It was always large deals, and in large deals, it was you know sniper, not shotgun. Now, it depends what you sell. You know, if you're selling large deals of high value, you can afford the sniper. If you're if you if you're transactional commodity, I can sort of understand how people are doing, you know, the, the shotgun, but spray and pray. <laughs> a little more effort in there, a little more effort. Because um, most people think, yeah, do you know what? If I've got their name or their company name in the email text, that makes a difference. No, that's standard. That is standard. Um, mm. people, that means nothing anymore. It's just, I think it's better to have understanding that person what their business problems are and making it relevant in your reach out request because your solution potentially solves it is going to be far more compelling than personalization. All right, all right. Uh, I want to switch it up just a little bit um, because we both end up sounding like sales coaches. <laughs> um, your um, entrepreneurial experience uh, in starting that, that business um, that, that raised investment um, I'm, I'm interested to hear about that process in, in, in the raising of those, uh, those, those funds. Um, how did you find that process? Um, what, what, did, what did you learn from that that you feel you could share with, share with people that in terms painful. of being prepared painful. for it? Painful, painful, painful. Um, and and it's, I think it's, it's sort of more difficult for me now than it was then because then there was five of us on the exec team. So there was the CEO who was an accountant by trade and there was the CFO. So these were finance people. I was the sales guy. And a lot of times when you're raising funds, they want to hear from the, you know, the head of sales because this is the guy that's potentially going to accelerate the business through. Um, but, you know, the, the, the old adage of you've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find princess um, is it, true because, you know, there are a lot of people. Where, it's a bit like when you apply for a job now. People apply for jobs. You know, you see lots of applicants. They never even hear about. They get hundreds of applicants because people just filter and dismiss. And it's the same when you're doing fundraising. They'll take an immediate glance, or they're using technology to scan your application to look for keywords, terms, structure, whatever, and see whether it's worth drilling down. That's what HR industry does. Um, and so it was a painful process, and you, you really got to find. If I look back then. We looked, we went after anybody who had a fund. Now we would look for anybody who's got a fund who has a track record of investing in what we do. And you don't want just dumb money. You want someone who, along with the money, is going to help you make introductions, advise you, lead you, work with you shoulder to shoulder in the trenches. The worst thing you can do, I think, is just take money. Um, because that well, depends, I say, some people will be very grateful for money, but if you get money with experience, knowledge and a network, wow, so much better. And we didn't really get that. We, we ended up with an investor that was high maintenance. Um, a bunch of investors that were high maintenance, took up a lot of time, didn't think logically, um, didn't really understand what we were doing, but it was their money. And 10 million pounds um, mm. was a lot of money especially on an idea. Um, 
And nowadays, people are less likely to fund ideas. They want to see traction. They want to see revenue. Um, a lot of the times, people will say, yeah, great. Love the product, Kevin. Come back to us when you're a, a, um, uh, a million annual recovering revenue. And you're like, well, I won't need you then. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So basically, there's people who are probably more mitigating too much risk. There are people that are going to look at it on the seed side or pre-seed side who know they're going to uh, try and sort of develop uh, a product in a space they think can boom. I, there was a, um, um, a UK organization last year that, because of COVID, because it's an online summit platform, it's gone through the roof. So circumstances meant that suddenly VCs were throwing money at it um, without really sort of talking to the people at great length. They said, oh, this is a big opportunity. So, um, yeah, it, it, is, it is a time-consuming way. I'm a solopreneur. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. It's just me yeah. leading the business. And fundraising is almost full-time. So if I do that, then that means I can't manage the business and lead the business and do the sales and marketing in general. So it's a balancing act. And, and if there was co-founders, it would be a bit easier where one could focus on the funding, one could focus on the go-to-market. Um, yeah. So that's where I'm sort of stuck between a rock and a hard stone. Gotcha. So now, now it's time to pull off the gloves and talk about what we're, we're really here to talk about, and that is uh, CRM and what you believe its benefits and drawbacks are and why you believe your product uh, enhances, betters, uh, can deliver value where CRM cannot. Okay, so let me put it straight out there. I don't think that CRM is a bad thing. I just think it's overrated. So let me explain. You know, you, you can't you can't live with it. You can't live without it. Uh, when I say you can't live with it, that's based on what we all know: the adoption rate of sales guys. You know, let's use the term. You know, who is it that said that Salesforce, the number one CRM? The reason it's called Salesforce is because you have forced sales to use it, and that is a bit of that's any CRM. You know, you, the amount of sales leaders that get frustrated because they're trying to get sales guys to keep it updated, to enter the data, et cetera, et cetera. And that's because I think largely CRM has become this crutch that it's more about aligning salespeople with the needs of internal management. Think about what it's customer relationship management. Let's focus on that word relationship. If you look at the standard CRM, what is it doing in relationships? It's, it's very seller-centric. It's very focused on us. How do we get this deal? It's not really focused on the customer. Yes, you can do a bunch of different things. But I, I think that that's where I, I say a lot of the time is buying has changed, but selling hasn't adapted. And the CRM, CRM which is the number one sales tool um, for any business, it hasn't really adapted with it. And okay, there's a big umbrella I've just said there because there's a lot of different CRMs. And you've got the top four, which is more than half the market and they're beasts. And then you've got some pretty agile, sexy little CRM platforms that are doing a bunch of things, but they're not necessarily so great on, on, on uh, integration, workflows, reporting, other things. So it's a balance. But so I, I just think that because buying has changed, CRM needs help. Yeah. Well, I, I agree in for for the most part in that. Um, my my only caveat to that is that um, I think it's about 
the people that are responsible for configuring the CRM have a responsibility to be honest and transparent with uh, people who are involved in change in saying, uh, this thing you're asking them to do, that's never going to get done. You're asking too much. They're already doing all these things. Um, and fundamentally, what do you want them doing? Uh, do you want them spending most of their time talking to people or do you want them spending most of their time inputting what they said to people? Because if they're doing the latter, they're having fewer conversations. So it's very rare you know, on where, where we sort of come, come in and have worked really well with clients is, is having that view right across the business and, and all departments that are asking for things being able to communicate back and say, well, I can understand why you want this thing, but if I if we do it, it's gonna have a detriment, detrimental impact over here. So the, the cost value thing, you know, can we look at a different way of doing what, what you're looking for, uh, rather than just keep doing what most people do, which is stick another field in Salesforce, stick another field in, stick another field in. And because salespeople are at the coalface, they're the ones that get all these fields to, to input and then they get frustrated, they're not getting time to, to talk to people and ultimately there's nothing in it for them as individuals. Nobody's actually sitting down with them and watching them do their daily job and saying, uh, wow, I didn't realise we were asking you to do all these different things and it was taking you so long to do it. Let's look at how we can clear that up, uh, integrate something to automate it. Uh, let's look at a different way. Do we do we actually need a, a, a dedicated team to do this particular function? So I think it, it just ends up as a great big push downhill onto the salespeople. Um, and as consultants, we have a responsibility to to say, hang on a minute here. I, I, you know, I can see why you want to do it, but here's the impact. I hate the fact that you said all of that. Hate it because I've got to bloody agree with you. And the whole idea of this this dialogue was that we were going to disagree and get feisty. But yeah, you're right. Look, the CRM. Some of the powerful ones you get this shiny. I hate that word too. I, I hate the word CRM. And people use single source of truth, uh, central intelligence system. You know, I, I I like to call it because it really should be a component. Um, um, and a central repository for all departments within the business to be inputting and but extracting data from it. I'm going to alienate myself now. And I, look, I didn't create this, but CRM cost plus result equals mistake. Now that I know, I you know that that's harsh, harsh. But I think it's the reason you can draw that conclusion is because of the benefits that are derived. Now. Going back to what you said a moment ago is you get the shiny new toy. It's powerful. Some of these things are super powerful beyond what we need. It's like a lot of things when you buy a new dishwasher or TV or gadgets, whatever, they've got more things than you ever need, but they've got to cover the basis for everyone wants. Now, the problem is then you get these people internally who set it up based on utilizing that powerful capability or things they think might need to be done that actually bear no relevance to winning the deal or helping this sales guy to sell. So my issue is not necessarily what CRM can do. It's about how it's set up, how it's utilized and, and how it's policed by organizations. 
I had I was speaking to a guy the other day, old friend of mine now, works for a large organization, talking about, and, and he was getting this bing, bing, bing going off with emails. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm just getting these automated emails uh, that have been set up to say that I haven't updated this in CRM for the last seven days. And they still get it all the time. We get these emails that they've set up, these auto reminders that if you haven't done something in CRM, then you get an email saying you haven't done something in CRM. Mm -hmm. And it's like, God, big brother's watching them doing all of these sort of things. And a lot of the time, they've got these arbitrary fields that they've got to fill in that they immediately know has absolutely no relevance to winning or losing that deal. But it's mandated at corporate level or the way the CRM has been architected. So we've sort of got to the root cause quite quickly in the fact that, you know, the CRM in the wrong hands or managed wrongly is going to be ineffective and it's going to be frustrating for sales teams. Mm. But it is, but that said, that said, it still has, um, it's still, it's not biocentric. Would you agree? Grant me that one. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, we're doing more agreeing than arguing here, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, the, invariably, what we get asked for is unrelated to customers. Um, and that is, you know, the, the sales manager will come in, the chief revenue officer or whoever, right, right, okay, this is how I want my sales team to be, salespeople to be selling. Here's all the stages. Here's all the hard gating fields that, that we wanted to, to, to be filling out. And uh, yeah, let, let's put that in place. Um, and we're kind of like, right, okay. Do you want to just talk me through those, through those fields? What the purpose is? You know, what all these twelve different stages mean to you? Because they're just not going to get used. Um, so yeah, and and invariably we, we we boil it down to you're setting this up for how you want your salespeople to be selling not how the buyers actually buy and their process um and i've said this on on a, on a few of these uh, you're no wonder you get down into someone's forecast and they're like yeah i'm committing to this deal and then when you uncover and you speak to the customer they're like yeah, well, it's now got to go to a buying committee, and it's going to take like another another three months. Because they didn't know. But most forecasts, if you look at the way sales really works, and when you look at organisations and sales teams that make their numbers, yeah, they make their numbers, but most of the time they didn't make their numbers with what they forecast. The the deals they forecast have moved to the right because they weren't well qualified and didn't really understand it. And they scramble around every month, quarter, end of year, whatever, and draw numbers in just to make the forecast. But it's rarely based on the forecast that they submitted or the committed deals. Most and most most sales leadership and, and business leadership were forgiving as as long as the number was met. How the number got there doesn't really matter. And I think that's that's not sustainable. It isn't sustainable. And yeah, I think, I think when you know when you look at CRM and what is absolutely vital, because then if you can boil it down to what's vital, the rest you can be a little bit more relaxed around. So close date of the opportunity, of the deal, that for me is probably the most important field in any CRM because that's when you're telling the your manager the, the the execs the board whatever when that deal is coming in so that that for me is priority number one 
um, looking at the amount, the product, and next step. And then we get into what where, what we want to get in with you is the who. Who's involved in all of that? Right, right. Let's go two things there. Um, the the close date. One of the problems is most sales guys, and, and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of them, will put a date that has got padding in it or say because they don't want to be pressurized and commit a date. And most most and, and, and that's where the onus is on the sales leader start focusing on, on what they really know, why they put that date in. Because if they really pick the bones of that, they find that it's, it's lot is made up. But sales guys will put the date out as far as possible a lot of the time. So I'm not so sure that that is that helpful. What was it you said? You said the close date, the value. Um, what was the other products, one you said? Product, so product. amount, products, uh, next step. Yeah, see, next step. Here's another issue. CRM classically is next step in the opportunity. Well, if you've got 10, 11, 12, 14 people, involved in making a consensus committee-based decision you should be having next steps with each of them because they'll you know the, the whole thing nowadays you might look at a user in the in the old way of selling the users weren't important sales guys didn't focus on them they focused on the senior people now if you're selling technology for example the user's super important because senior people aren't going to invest in something unless the user's on board so you have to understand you know, what's your next step with these individual users, understanding what's important to that person. So, you know, next steps is a, a hugely important part, but I think CRM needs to expand it to be next steps based on contacts. Rather than just one single sentence. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get you. Um, and is that something Boxstep helps with? Of course. <laughs> well, see, what I did is I, I tried, you know, I came from the trenches. I came from understanding how people uh, were involved in the deciding and buying. So I looked at the sort of the good that CRM does, and, and I do believe that CRM is a, a, a key thing. And we've not tried to duplicate that. We've tried to say, okay, what can we add to in CRM? Now, not every sale is complex or enterprise. There's a lot of commodity or transactional sales. So what we do isn't for everybody. If you're involved in longer sales cycles, maybe slightly higher value, maybe risk associated with the wrong decision, but certainly engaging with a wider group of people, then, then that's us. And that's why it's called complex sales or enterprise sales or high consideration sales. So you look at saying, right, the intangibles, the who, why, what, when, and how, the things that we're all taught in sales training, we've got to understand. When you look at, see, how do you transpose that into a CRM solution? People say, oh, you can customize it, you can, be great for you guys, customization, pick lists and workflows, but it's still trying to sort of force the square peg into a round hole because a lot of this, it's so much better when it when it's visual. So historically, you know, in sales, we would knock up in PowerPoint an org chart of the people that, you know, are in that organization that we need to get in touch with. And it's pretty simple. You do it, you know, early doors, you never never really sort of dynamically built on it. Um, but now selling is a team sport, not a lone wolf sport. So I've got a bunch of people that are going to help me on that deal. So they need to access it, share it, see it, visualizing it, understanding where we're at, what we might need to do, what's important to each person. Then, you know, from relate from that side, so the understanding, but deciding and buying is difficult. Differentiating our product level is not easy. Uh, mutual action plans, joint action plans, collaboration plans, whatever you want to call them, is a tool that we extend across the buying committee to say, right, now we can engage with them to help them navigate their own internal complexity, pointing them on the right road for all the things they need to get done to keep this project on, on track. 
Um, and, and buyers appreciate salespeople that are out to help. If they think of you as just a seller, then yeah, you know, they'll put you in the bucket with every other seller. If you're a yeah. sales guy that is truly trying to be buyer-centric and saying, look, I'm gonna lead, help you based on what I know about these sort of deals and working with other clients for you. And, and that, that buying experience is a key differentiator now because difficult to do on a product or service level. So yeah, if you think about it, that's not a logical thing in CRM, is it? These sort of things. So, so would you say that um, clearly you know, this tool is designed to, to, to support the, the sales process and, and win more deals, but the reality of it is we don't win every deal, regardless of, of all the best efforts that, that we can put in. Um, does what, what you do help um, that analysis around when 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 you do lose something, sort of being able to sort of uh, unpick everything and say, well, where do we believe it went wrong? Um, and why do we believe we lost the deal? Thank you, Lee. That this isn't one of my sort of pet subjects right now because historically, I and going back to CRM because this is a CRM debate. I remember having sales guys, and, and we would have these sales stages in CRM, and at the end of it, you could change it to closed, and it'd be closed one, closed lost. And as soon as you did that, box would pop up with reason. And guess what? When it was one, 99.9% of the time, because the salesperson was fantastic. And when it was lost, it was someone else, price product or, or whatever. Nobody really learns anything. Uh, so win-loss analysis or performance feedback is, is crucial because selling is getting tougher. And here's a couple of stats for you. I think it's more than half of salespeople don't make target and more than half of forecasted opportunities end in no decision. So what can we do to improve sales performance and less no decisions? And one of the things we can do is understand how do we do? Whether we want a deal or lost a deal or no decision, the more we understand how do we perform, and not by asking one person, but, but by asking this buying committee, because they made a decision collectively, how do we do? Because every data point enables to understand what we do well, what we need to improve. And if sales team wants to stop repeating the same mistakes and moving on and just saying, go next, please, next deal, you know, the best thing to do, because getting opportunities hard, so if you're understanding your performance on the opportunities you've got, guess what? Next time out, you're, you're going to do better. You're going to do better. If you're hearing from the buyer's perspective, don't do win-loss where you self-analyze and do a blamestorming session. You know, the sales team get together and things like that. Or paying expensive. Yes, look, if you, some of these third parties that do win-loss analysis are very good. Deep, you know, most people do it when they've lost a big deal they thought they'd win. But they tend to interview one person. And going back to what I keep saying, my little buying committee drum, People are making decisions across a wider group. So get opinions from across a wider group. So yeah, this, this is a, an area that I'm super excited about. And that's the third part of the Box Step trilogy. Right, uh, and would I be right in saying, and I'm teeing you up here again a, a bit, do you like the golf analogy that teeing, teeing you up a bit? Um, you mentioned uh, when I asked the question about what did you learn from your time at Ericsson, you said, well, uh, well, I learned a lot of the time for that time, but now a lot of it's irrelevant. So by analyzing in the right way why you're winning and losing, you'll be able to understand when those patterns and habits and everything are shifting. Yeah, do you know, here, I, I probably said this one before, Lee, but one of the interesting things that came out of the feedback is when we do one feedback, a third of the time, the deal was won despite the salesperson. 
So the salesperson strutting around like, like a dog with two dicks saying, I won this deal. But the reality is, there's other reasons. And it's only when you start to analyze it. And most, you know, it's like, uh, we need to do more feedback requests, said no salesperson ever. I mean, salespeople don't tend to drive the need for feedback. But if I was a sales guy today, I desperately want to learn it. I would desperately want to learn saying, you know, getting performance feedback. This wasn't available to us in the past. So we, we would self self-analyze. That's all we did. Now we live in a feedback community. People are giving feedback for all sorts of things, TripAdvisor, various other things, you know, rate us for this, rate us for that. It's a normal thing that some people are very willing to do. If you keep it short, sweet, focused, people will do it. But if you can grab that data, this is this is the data that can help us evolve. And um, you know, everyone's talking about becoming biocentric, but really what most of it is a bit of marketing fluff. You know, hey, let's do some wording that makes sense. Salespeople, unfortunately, are creatures of habit. We don't change easily. The best salespeople evolve and change based on the buyers. What's that, what do they need? And unfortunately, it's quite a selfish industry. We're quite greedy people focused on, on wealth and, and ego and success. But that is changing now. And, and, and what I mean by, yeah, we, we've still got those things, but the smart ones know how to channel that in a way um, that is, is more buyer focus rather than all about them and their product and their company. So, um, and, and get, get all of that as a net result of just changing the way you sell. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 there are so many people out there talking about selling and, and, and I, some of it, I like some of it, I don't. And, um, but there are some standard things that any sales guy needs to focus on when they're, they're, they're in sales. And, and we built those in and it's like a very basic methodology. It's not, I hate the word methodology, but it's like, you've got to understand the problem. You've got to understand how urgent it is. You've got to understand what outcomes they're looking to achieve. What are their needs? What are their criteria? Basics. How many people bypass that? Quite a lot. They can't help but get into, I'm going to talk about our product. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we, yeah, we I went through that same, you know, I, I can, I can relate to that because I recently went through a process of speaking to a lot of demand gen companies because I'm toying with the idea of getting back into it. I've had my fingers burned with email marketing before the data was terrible. And I kind of put this out there with all these different lead gen companies saying, look, here's who my target market is. Here's what I would like to be able to do. Uh, here's my bad experience just to let you know. So I was quite, quite open with it. And the amount of people that, um, you know, arranged a call you know, within, within an hour, you know, the response rate was pretty good, but you'd expect that from a demand gen company. Incidentally, there's some, some that I still haven't had a response from like four mm -hmm. five, six weeks later, but as soon as I got on the call, it became right. Okay, we've got we've, we had your inquiry form. Uh, we understand what what, uh, what what you're looking for. Let us tell you um, uh, a bit about us. And you're expecting like a couple of minutes, and then ten minutes later, you're like, uh... tomorrow morning. I saw a post last week about account-based marketing, and these people and everybody's sycophantically going, "Boom, you smashed it." What they said was that um, digital advertising can shorten the sales cycle in complex and enterprise sales. So I responded to it and they've come back and said, well, let's, let's chew the fat on it. And I'm thinking, it's a load of rubbish. Absolutely. You know, dig digital transformation will not shorten the sales cycle. Um, but people do that because they're focused on promoting themselves. 
without truly understanding how people decide and buy. And here's the one, th one takeaway I'd always give to any organization that's listening today. You have to understand how your customers decide and buy. Take the time to go and review deals you've won, go and talk to people, say, what happened? Who was involved? What hurdles did you hear? What bottlenecks? What was a problem? What, what could you've had that might have helped? Because the more you understand their challenges of buying, the better you can become at selling. Um, but everyone's so self-obsessed with, oh, we help, we help. My product's only good if people have the right discipline and mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't look to use and embrace this, then it will fail, like any tool. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how marketing is saying we can help shorten the sales cycle. But if what they're saying is, hey, Mr. Customer, we are going to tell you that you're going to change your buying process. It, it's madness because everybody, you know, and that's why I say it's, it can be cheesy, but I say helping is the new selling. Because when you're helping someone, immediately you're adding value to them, even if it's agnostic to the overall decision. And they are more than likely want to do business with you because they see you as someone that's helping them, not just trying to sell to them. Sales yeah. have got a bad reputation for a reason. And that <laughs> sometimes we put our interest over and above the customers. And that has to change. Absolutely. Lightening things up uh, just uh, at the end here, Kevin. Um, this, this past 12 months has been significantly challenging for, uh, for everyone. Uh, and and challenging negatively and challenging positively for some some have thrived not just survived uh during, during this pandemic um some unfortunately uh no no longer are, are in business um and some of us are are just surviving through but on a on a personal level um how have you kept yourself sharp motivated uh, during this past 12 months, because obviously we've been working from home, um, you know, day turns into night, into day, into week, into month. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear your tips and tricks of how you've sort of kept yourself sharp and focused. I'm a constant learner, a constant learner. Um, and I don't mean about everything. I can't be a sponge for everything. But if I, I'm constant, and it's always been like that in my career, I've always looked to evolve sales. You know, I, I, I would be a top performer. Come the beginning of the year when I'm zero percent, I'm just like everybody else. I'm there and think, right, what do I need to do differently? What can I do? What you know, what can I do to adapt and, and be be, uh, be better than I was the previous year? So I I find you know I do listen to podcasts, webinars, various other things, and I tend to have them on while I'm sort of working. I can multitask in that that way. But it, it's it's a way twofold. Firstly, learning, but secondly, product evolution. You know, I have time to reflect and go, okay, what can I make better? Because our product's still evolving. Um, and of course, every product's still evolving, but it's nearly where we want it to be, nearly. Um, and what do I mean by that? It, 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 it's there where most people only need it to be there. Going back to what I said about, you know, people, solutions do more than they ever need, but I just like to get my product to really where I, I'm super proud of it. And I am proud of it now. So I'm learning and evolving. So the, keeping the mind active, focused on purposeful things, because the business has been impacted by coronavirus. And the main reason being is a lot of organizations who have been impacted on their sales, they said, right, our sales have been impacted, so we won't spend any money. And you go, well, actually, 
if you took a slightly different approach to sales, some of them might not be. You've got a lot of organizations in digital transformation have, have been killing it because everyone's saying, okay, we've got to adapt and things like that. But then some organizations have been really hit hard um, and people have been slow. We're, we're coming out of that now. People have started to make more decisions. Um, but yeah, it, it's self-education is a massive thing. Um, the day you become uneducated, uh, you, it's pretty instant because information is, is flowing um, so quickly that as soon as you stop learning, you are uneducated because the speed of change is so huge. So that, that's, for me, it's self-education. And there's plenty of assets out there, podcasts, webinars, blogs, that really think some of it's crap, but a lot of it's good. Yeah, um, and I can relate to that um, because I, I enjoy reading books. I, I do. Finding the time to read them is something I can do better at. You know, generally in the evening, I, I want something that I don't have to think about reading that just sort of sends you sends you to sleep. Um, so what I found is I'm doing my learning through doing these podcasts. So I'm meeting people that I didn't know before. I'm talking to them about industries that perhaps in, in some instances uh, that I know nothing about. Um, so I'm, um, I'm really enjoying growing uh, myself, listening to people um, and learning stuff that I know nothing about, which, which is wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed it. No, I mean, uh, that's one of the beauties of uh, the digital world. There's so much out there. But if you can sort the wheat from, from the chaff, um, it's pretty good. It's the same with books. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, I'm not a massive reader of books. I do like a book. And if I, if I get a good book, I start, I, I really jump through it. But I, I just love the, um, you know, there are some books that really fit into, were you ever a Blackadder fan? Yeah, yeah uh, yes, yeah. There was a there was an expression he used once. He said the most useless book since How to Learn French was translated into French. Um, you know, it's it, it was you get some books like that, um, and if you think that through, you go, yeah, that would be useless. But there are every now and then um, there are books where I, I, I get them and I can't put them down because I'm absorbing them and I'm thinking. You know, I always say that one of my greatest abilities was to spin what I learned. And, and make it work for me, uh, my style, my industry, whatever. Um, so I, I wasn't necessarily the creator of the ideas, but I could spin what I learned. Wonderful. Kevin, uh, I really appreciated your time. I've really enjoyed our, our chat. Um, Thank you. Somewhat, somewhat disappointed that we didn't argue uh, more. Yeah. It transpires um, we, we agree more than we thought. <laughs> but it, it's, you know, we all know that CRM is useful but it isn't the bill and everything. And if people approached it differently, maybe salespeople will adopt it more, but it still needs help to be biocentric. Uh, absolutely. Kevin, thanks so much for your time. Uh, so we've got time Pleasure. for today on Business Source. Look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Thanks. Cheers, Kevin.